So this upcoming thing happening on Tuesday and the drama surrounding it got me thinking about politics and leadership in regards to Christianity. And church and politics have a long and sordid history going all the way back to the time of Constantine. Does anyone remember Constantine, a Roman Empire who ruled from about 306 to 337? And legend has it that during a battle, Constantine prayed to God asking for a sign. And again, shortly thereafter, legend has it, he saw in the sky the sign of a cross, again, bearing the image saying, in this sign, conquer. Or I guess by the symbol you were conquer. Something something to that effect. So he was victorious, and afterwards he converted the entire Roman Empire to Christianity, made it the the official religion of the empire. So overnight, Christians went from being a a persecuted minority, I guess, to being the official official religion of the, the state. And it seems that ever since, Christians have struggled with their relationship between leadership and authority, trying to figure that out. And even in my own lifetime, I've noticed some of that awkwardness. Um, so when I was in high school, uh, a member of my church was actually a nominee for president of the United States of America. I know you're probably thinking, maybe it was Ross Perot? Nope. Nader? Nope. Bob Dole? Nope. My wife's the only one who knows this. Earl Dodge. Earl Dodge was a member of my church who ran as a nominee for the National Prohibitionist Party. Every year, you can look him up, he has a Wikipedia page. Um, So every year from about 1954, I guess, to 2004, he ran um, for different political offices the last, I think, two or three times, literally as a nominee for president of the United States. And I remember growing up, he would be there with his little fledgling political party, I guess, in the basement of our church holding meetings, and they would be discussing their various you know, political platforms for health care, whatever, you know, what have you. And he, I almost brought this today, but I have enough to remember. He would, he would be fond of passing out a book called The Bible and Signs. I, I still have a copy on my bookshelf because I feel like I feel like it's just a relic that I just need to hold on to, I guess. Uh, and so he would, of course, being a prohibitionist, I guess, he would regularly pass this out. Now, uh, sadly, I don't, uh, you know, I don't quite abide to those uh, that book anymore. But you know, I feel like it's worth keeping just for I don't know memory's sake, I guess. Um, so from there, I went to Bible college, and I was in college during the famous or infamous, I guess you will say, you know, Bush versus Gore election, and it, it was a religious nonprofit, so technically uh, it wasn't allowed to expressly, um, what's the word, expressly endorse a candidate, right? So I remember the president of the college, he would get up in chapel, and he was a good old-time Texas preacher with that good old Texas drawl. So he'd say, I want y'all to help me in my campaign to beautify Washington, D.C., by planting a bush in the White House. Come on, I thought I'd get a better holler and hoot. 
it did during that time. You know, I thought that was clever. And by the time that I graduated college, um, I was so certain of an alignment of a certain political party with Christianity that I was shocked when I went to work for a Baptist church and the pastor, the assistant pastor, told me that he voted for Carrie. God forbid. Is it, is it close enough? Has it been far enough where I can make a joke about that? I was hoping so, that it's safe now. But I understand, that's, it's hairy. Now, many of us have probably been in, in various situations wondering if we're attending a political service or a religious service. And I bet most of us can think about or know of almost every church has done this, whatever stripe of church there has done this on some regard, and trying to convince us that God is on this side of the political party or that side of the political party or whatever political party they're a part of, I guess even the prohibitionist party. And I bet if you're like me, you've sat back or stepped back and thought about it and said, this just feels weird, right? And I think most of us would agree that this probably isn't the best thing for churches to be doing. Now, it's not to say that the Bible isn't political. I believe the Bible is very political because I, I think the Bible talks about the ways in which we treat one another and live in community. Rather, I would say that the Bible is not partisan, despite, I think, what some would perhaps lead us to believe. And more than that, though, the Bible has a lot to say about leaders, from examples of good leaders to warnings about bad leaders. So it's very interesting um, that Christianity and politics have often had this uneasy relationship, I guess, through the years, not because they are, again, like, at least that I believe, not because I, don't, I believe they're inherently contradictory, but because I think that Christians have been aligning themselves with the wrong kind of leadership. So we are in the third week of this series called Upside Down, which looks at what Jesus called the kingdom of God and how it turned expectations upside down. So again, Jesus lived in a pretty political climate, the Roman Empire, uh, in a country occupied by the Roman Empire, that is, ancient Israel, and he'd travel around teaching what he called the kingdom of God. So he'd give stories and examples to help people understand how different things would be if God was in charge and how people could live in accordance with God's kingdom. So often, Jesus spoke in riddles and in what we call parables because, you know, again, if you said anything back then that would make the Romans mad or the rulers mad, they could just have you killed. So sometimes, though, because of his riddles and his parables and his stories, people didn't quite understand what he was talking about. Even, it seems, the disciples imagine that. So one day, one of his, or two of his disciples, James and John, their brothers, came up to him and said, hey, Jesus, we have an idea. When you come into your kingdom, when God's kingdom is here on earth, like we think you're talking about anyway, can we be, you know, your top advisors? Can we sit on your left and on your right when you're sitting on your throne? So Jesus is, is quite confused by that. And um, if you'd like to, we can read the story. It comes from the book of Mark, if I can turn there with one hand. Uh, but Mark chapter 10 tells us the whole encounter. So if you'd like to read along with me, it, it's in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. 
Tom and Matthew. I thought that looked wrong. So Matthew is the book before Mark. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Kind of humble request, right? And he said to them, What is it you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup which I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism which with I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, as you can imagine, the other disciples, they began to be very angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognized as the rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's how, how it went. And, you know, these two disciples, James and John, brothers, they come and ask for this. And Jesus says, no, that's not happening. Or it's, 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 I'm not going to offer it to you. That's not mine to give. And the other disciples obviously get mad and say, well, what are you doing? And, and Jesus says, you know what? You all are missing the entire point. This power struggle between you all about who's going to be a ruler isn't the way I want things to be. That's not how God intended it. He said God's kingdom isn't about replicating the ways of Rome and their powerful empire, emperors and ruling authorities. Jesus said, no, in God's kingdom, things would look vastly different. Jesus said that to the Gentiles or to the Romans, they exercised power by flexing their muscles and showing who was in charge. Rebellions were crushed, revolutions were disbanded, and any sign of dissidence was put down immediately. There was to be no doubt about who was in charge. But Jesus said, whoever wants to be a leader in God's kingdom must first be a servant. For that's the model that Jesus himself replicated. Not to be served, but to serve. The entire mission of Jesus, the entire time he was alive, he wasn't looking for himself. Rather, he was looking out for others. I'm thinking of the, I remember the, from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross. This is the way of servant leadership that Jesus demonstrated, which was completely contradictory to the way that things were during Jesus' time. You could say he turned upside down what many expected from a leader. 
And we know that his commitment to serving others took him to a horrible death. A death on the cross. It's no wonder why many people considered it foolishness, as the Apostle Paul once wrote. But failed leadership in the world's eyes was perfected leadership, according to the Bible. Let me say that again. Failed leadership in the world's eyes is perfected leadership, according to the Scriptures. And that's the model that Jesus exemplified the one that's illustrated in the Bible. He was, you might say, the shepherd, one who is willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of the sheep. Now, if you're like me, I'm not sure a shepherd is what comes to mind when we think about leadership. After all, we've been trained to think of leaders as strong, domineering types, especially if we watch political ads, right? A shepherd isn't something we equate with leadership, And truthfully, I'm not sure even how many during the time of Jesus would have thought that a shepherd was a good leader. But there was something about that job that the biblical writers again and again equated with good leadership. Whether it was their dedication, their sacrifice, or their willingness just to be care for the sheep at all costs. Biblical writers saw the shepherd as the perfect illustration of what a good leader should be. And Jesus did as well, for in the book of John, he says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I believe that Jesus is the ultimate example of good leadership. And I think that as followers of Jesus, we should seek to emulate his kind of leadership. You know, chances are, if you're here this morning, you could share stories of good and bad experiences with leadership, whether it be in church, at work, or in politics. One thing that I want to commit to you this morning, as your pastor, that I will do my best to be a good leader. I will live out the values and the ways that Jesus exemplified And I will do my best to exemplify the characteristics of a good shepherd. If you were here for our first Sunday, a stole was placed upon me, which is a long garment that kind of goes around your neck. And it's meant to symbolize the burden and responsibility of pastoral leadership. And upon this stole was the symbol of a shepherd's rod which speaks to the ways that pastors have taken on the example and responsibility of being a leader in the way of Jesus. You know, as I think about being a leader in the way of Jesus, I think on a basic level, in this political climate, if I can go here for a minute, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. You take a deep breath. I'm not going to suggest that one party is more inherently Christian than the other. I am not going to explicitly criticize a politician by name. Such actions, in my mind, simply replicate that same kind of heavy-handed and authoritarian style of leadership that Jesus spoke against. Rather, I want to be the kind of leader that Jesus spoke of, that Jesus demonstrated. To be servant of all, to be slave of all, not to be served, but to serve. 
And that's a commitment I take seriously. You all are not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. If I can say this then, you all are my sheep. You're my people. And I take that job very seriously. And that means that I, as your pastor, as your leader, don't do so from a place of superiority, but rather from a place of solidarity. Let me say it this way. In our society, or maybe just in our English language, we often confuse the words sympathy and empathy. We kind of use them interchangeably. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Now, it's different than sympathy, which is to feel pity and sorrow for someone or for someone else's misfortune, usually from a place of safety or superiority. So let me be real for a minute. It would be easy for me, as someone who is straight and white and male, who often occupies a place of superiority in our culture, to be your pastor from that safe place. But as your pastor, my aim is not to sympathize with you. Rather, my aim is to empathize with you from a place of commonality and presence. I remember in the book of Matthew, Jesus is described as standing on top of a hilltop And he looks out over a group of people and he says, he has compassion on this group of people as if they're sheep without a shepherd. That they didn't have anyone to care for them or look out for them or to be with them. Now truly, whoever you are this morning, wherever you're from, whatever your background is, wherever you come from, I can't understand you or your circumstances or your background, even if you're 99% like me. But I want to make this commitment that I will do my best to support you and be with you from a place of commonality and mutuality. So this week, or this morning, please know that despite the heaviness of these weeks leading up to this election on Tuesday, please know that I'm with you. If you feel anxious about the future, please know that I'm with you. And if you're just struggling this morning trying to make it through everyday life, please know that I'm with you. And more than me, I want you to know this morning that this church is with you. Because we as Mission Gathering Christian Church are forming a community that seeks to be in solidarity with you. And really everyone, because that's what we believe that Jesus did. We do this because we believe that God's table, and this is something we practice on a weekly basis because we believe it so strongly, we believe that God's table has a place for everyone. Therefore, we seek to make this a place where everyone is welcomed and included. You know, in this time of so much divisiveness and discord, this seems like a lofty goal, right? Sometimes I say, is this even possible? But our mission together does not have to be to change the world. Doesn't have to say to be to change our state, not to change our city. 
Rather, our mission is just to create a place where people are welcomed, everyone is valued, and where we lead by serving in the way of Jesus. And in doing that, this is what's so amazing. In doing that, even in this small space, in this small scale, in the midst of our big community and city and state and world and country, in doing this small thing together, we will begin to change our city, our state, our country, our world. But it starts here, together, even this very day. It starts by doing what we're doing together, loving, caring, welcoming, including our presence, our listening, our empathizing. We can be the change that the world needs here together. We can create the kind of leadership that the world needs by first being the kind of leaders that the world needs. You know, in this time of divisiveness and demagoguery, we can be the leaders by highlighting a different way, God's way, together. That's good news. That is good news. There is a better way, God's way, God's kingdom. And by following the ways of God's kingdom, we can show the world a better way.